This is a podcast about smart women doing smart things in and for Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Fiona Mattesini, and I've spent the past few years as a journalist and writer in this beautiful and fascinating part of the world. Ultimately, this is a podcast that celebrates women who are smashing the glass ceiling. So look out and you better wear shoes. Gina Wong is an award-winning and highly acclaimed film director. She made her directorial debut in 2011 with the documentary Orient Top Down, which won Best Foreign Film and Best First-Time Director at the Yosemite Film Festival. Since then, she's produced and directed several feature-length films and shorts, including the Emmy-nominated Circus of Books, widely acclaimed and, by the way, still available on Netflix. Her work has been showcased at film festivals across the globe, from London's prestigious Raindance to the Miami Film Festival and South by Southwest, both in the US. Gina was born in Hong Kong and went to school in London, so she's a dual citizen, lives mostly in France now, but spends plenty of time both in the UK and Hong Kong. Currently, she's based out of Paris, working on her latest film. But although Hollywood knows Gina as a film director, she's actually so much more. Gina is also an artist, an advocate, a campaigner and a curator. For example, she's co-founder and director of the Hong Kong art space Experimenta, and she's founder of Hong Kong's Pineapple Underground Film Festival, aka PUFF, an independent festival that seeks to bring independent films to mainland China. Gina graduated from the London School of Economics, majoring in math and economics, and later followed this up with a master's degree in literary and cultural studies from the University of Hong Kong. In between that time, she worked as an investment banker and entrepreneur, setting up her own investment fund. In the words of one article I read, she is, quote, a disruptive force in her field and a fervent supporter of avant-garde cross-genre art. Gina, welcome into the pod. It is such a great pleasure to have you on here as a guest. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And uh, hello from Provence today. That sounds so very glamorous. And I imagine that the weather over there is so much better than we have here in the UK. <laughs> You've worked and lived in several cities from Jakarta to Shanghai and Santiago. Can we start by talking about the creative process? Because I'm currently juggling two creative projects. And one of the things that's important to my process is physical environment. And in setting up this podcast, we realise that we both have flats around the corner from each other in North London. I just think there's something about the urban diversity and energy that I feed off. So I wondered what your creative process is. Do you wait for inspiration to land or do you actively seek it out? And if so, where do you go to and, and what do you do? My creative process is in the every daily life that I lead um, in different cities. And it is really the personal experiences that I had because they're so profound and I felt it so profoundly. So, for example, just going to the gym. Now, that's a normal thing to do. I found that my gym instructor also teaches Hong Kong's first women rugby team. And at that time, uh, Hong Kong actually was having the first a professional women rugby player. So I turned out filming them, filming their training. And that accumulated into a show about women and about the privilege of playing sport. Now, there are privileges. And if you think about it, what, what are the sports that, that only men could do? 
I mean, I'm I'm a Formula One fan, and Lewis Hamilton, the first black Formula One driver, recently said, "How come there are no women Formula One driver?" Yeah, I'd never thought about that. And that makes you think, why? Well, because let me tell you why. Because Formula One is a billion-dollar game. You need one billion dollar to play that game. So far, mostly only one privileged group would have that sort of money and power that comes with it. So your everyday gym, don't think about just going to the gym. Just that process of having the privilege to exercise. To run, to run freely—that's、um, that's not a given. You've given us so much to think about just in that, which is astonishing. And as you say, it, it, what I love about how your mind works and your mind works in this incredible way is just to look beyond what you're doing and look at what it represents. And what you were saying about the Formula One industry does kind of link into my next question because I wanted to talk about your life pre-movies. You have substantial, really credible experience in the world of finance, and I do think there's a common misconception about the film industry, which is that people don't realise the huge finance and investment muscle behind the film industry, and the fact that it's really hard to get a film financed and to secure what the industry calls a green light. How much harder is it for women to raise money for film projects? Well, in Europe, eighty-four percent of all the public funding in film goes to male filmmakers, and we're talking about Europe, which is one of the most advanced areas in the world for women. Can you imagine the rest of the world? Can you imagine in Africa, Southeast Asia, South America? And the women only get about fifteen percent at best, and that is public. And when it comes to private funding, some years. Women gets like two percent to five in some countries, and in some countries, zero percent. Every movie essentially is a project finance. If you do financing, it involves a huge initial investment with potential、uh, revenue coming、uh, in the next few years, and hopefully in the next sometimes ten or fifteen years, if it's on Netflix or in the past on DVD. So essentially. Every movie is a new idea, and it's a new story, and every movie, therefore, is a startup. Just like any business, just like your corner shop or coffee shop, to be able to get a funding, a backing, an investor to believe in you. Now that is the art of funding a movie. So it's not just the story of your film; it's the story of you. As a human being, and how you can pitch, yeah, and that is the same as any 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 funding you don't get, whether it's a one million dollar project or hundred million dollar project, and the first few people who believed in you are your angel funders. <laughs> yes, yes. I shouldn't posit this as a statement. I should posit this as a question. I was going to say it must be intimidating to be pitching for huge levels of funding, but perhaps not. As you say, every funding is angel funding, and I hope that that experience is positive for you.、Um, actually, any confidence in in anyone, women or men,、uh, just comes from lots and lots of rejections. Really, I don't think anyone becomes confident on day one.、Um, it's just coming. To actually you know, take on the, the 
weaknesses and the rejections that you've had. And, and that builds you up. Anyone who's been on a roadshow to fundraise, whether it's a project you're doing at school or a multinational internet startup, the theory is the same. And if we broaden the conversation out to the film industry at large, I think another misconception is that all creative industries naturally lend themselves to parity in pay and parity in representation. But of course, that's not always the case. I thought it might be interesting to talk about the 2018 Oscars and the actress Frances McDormand, who won Best Actress. And in her acceptance speech, she mentioned inclusion riders, which for those that don't know, is a clause in uh, movie contracts demanding a film to have diverse casts and crews. Now, you're a longtime advocate for diversity and female driven films. I love that about you. Do you feel as though this movement in the right direction? Oh, definitely. I mean, now that you talked about Oscars, in the 90 years of its history, only five women has ever been nominated in the Best Director category, and only one has ever won. Can you believe that in 90 years? And that is in the United States. <laughs> it's shocking. We're not even in the game. Right. And to link to what we said about funding, women were only allowed to have their own bank accounts some 50 years ago. And in some country, only 30 years ago. Now, if you don't even have your own bank account, forget about fundraising for your film. And so when you talk about the, the film industry, definitely, if you think about it, only 5% of the cinematographer are women. The shocking thing is that percentage actually has not changed over the past 20 years. It was about 45% 20 years ago. And, um, and so we desperately need diversity. And one of the things for diversity is to hire more women as the producer and the director. Because we know when a woman is in charge, she is more likely to hire more women in her crew. Because you, you hire by your own image. Yeah. It kind of normalizes things. So when you think about cinematographer in the future, you don't automatically think it has to be a man. It doesn't have to be. As long as that person is good at what he or she is doing. I think it's that dichotomy. And actually, I should credit this comment to you, which is that people assume that the creative industries, as I said before, may be more equal. But actually, the corporate world, in a funny kind of way, there is a bit more equality, perhaps because it's mandated. I don't know. But actually, there is a little bit more parity in the corporate world than in a lot of creative industries, such as film. And do you know why that is? No. First, it's easier for the corporate world to actually uh, account your credibility and, your, and what you bring to the company. So, for example, if you bring, say, $5 million or certain dollar to your company, that is what your contribution is. Whereas in the art world, for example, Experimenter, uh, we've done a lot of art projects in the contemporary art world. How do you measure an artist's work? Mm. <laughs> yeah. How do you decide if you have one museum and one space? How do you decide this solo show will go to a woman or men's artist? It is harder to quantify, I guess. So in some way, it is easier for the corporate world to have a faster pace. I'm not saying it is parity. This is a faster pace of parity. And I love what you were saying about metrics and measuring success in, in, in art, because yeah, such a good point. And again, I'd never thought about that. 
something parallel to what we're talking about is is age. I'd heard that another filmmaker is making a documentary about women's ages, a female film director, and you're one of her subjects. It is another interesting topic of conversation. Can you tell us more about that? You know, everyone making a film knows that most of the leading men are much older than the women. They would begin the movie with a wife or a girlfriend, and that wife or girlfriend would somehow perish or disappear. And somehow, a new girlfriend or new love interest would appear much younger most of the time. If you think about this structure, it's been applied to blockbusters and and, and every streaming uh, TV series, um, which is kind of funny. It's changing, though. Having said that, things are changing so fast, only in the past two, three years. To go forward, there is hope. We know what has been happening to women in media. Uh, when they are a certain age, uh, their opportunity does go down. But in some ways, I don't really want to repeat that because let's, let's not talk about that anymore because words have power. Whenever people ask me about age, I'm going to say it's not a problem anymore. Next. <laughs> Love it. So empowering. So empowering. And it paves the way for the rest of us to say, yeah, actually, what does it have to do with it? If we take the corporate world as one example, I personally believe in positive discrimination when it comes to hiring women. Um, in other words, you're interviewing various people, give the job to a woman or to anyone actually who's marginalised, because I believe that's only then can change happen. But what are your thoughts on, on, on that, on positive discrimination? I entirely support that. The, the morning show, for example, actually said in an interview that they would hire, actively hire more women in their crew. So if... if there is a role, a writer or anything, they would want to hire a woman instead of a man. Because at some point in time, you need to get the ball rolling. And sometimes you know, before you get it, you know, get the momentum, you need someone to give it a little bit of push in some area. You can't just say, oh, we'll wait for it to happen. Well, it hasn't happened in the past, what, a hundred years. So, um, you know, 90 years, yeah, 90 <laughs> years of happen. Oscars and five nomination women. So, you know, you want to wait another 90 years? Um, you know, someone has to do it. And uh, some powerful women are. Mm, that's exactly my argument. And I'm so glad that you agree. You know, I feel like every single answer you give, we could have a spin-off podcast, by the way. So we're going to have to get you back on because there's so much food for thought. One thing that I have been thinking about a lot over the last couple of years, and actually I think it was the comedian Phil Wang, he made me think about this, Southeast Asian stereotypes in film. So I'm a British-born, half-English, half-Irish, white woman. I'm conscious of these stereotypes, possibly more so than any other ethnic or cultural tropes. What are your thoughts about Southeast Asian stereotypes in film? And does it wind you up? Because it winds me up and I'm a white woman. I don't even know where to start. Of course it winds me up because I'm not just watching a film with stereotypes of East Asian. I'm living that life because I've been living in Paris for, for the past two years and most people can't really differentiate between people from different Asian countries, which is fair enough because we Asian sometimes can't differentiate between people from different European countries either. So it goes both ways. Here in Paris, I, I feel that the, the stereotype is that Southeast Asian are either maids or a massage girl. 
that seems to be the stereotype. And, and, and there were many instances I was mystified at how I was treated, you know, just walking down the street, just buying a baguette, just having people look to me. But then that also gives me a, a lot of uh, opportunity to change people's perspective. And that's one of the greatest fun I have in Paris, is to surprise people. Good. To tell people off. Uh, because they, they assume that because I'm a Southeast Asian woman, that whatever it is, I'm timid and I won't say anything. But hey, no, hell. You know, if you do anything, I'm going to speak out and give you some sign languages that you might not like. <laughs> so um, that actually was, um, was great fun. <laughs> Go on. Just wanted to add a little bit. It's not fair. It's not like all Parisians are like that. Um, different groups, people live in different arrondissements, people with different um, careers. They do act differently, having said that. So I don't want to generalize um, Parisian, just to just to want to add that. That's it. Good for you. It's so good to hear you owning, owning the, the situation and empowering yourself. I'm so pleased. Great role model. I did read a very, very funny anecdote of yours when you were being interviewed elsewhere and you described being on location for um, one of your movies, The Road to Daydream Mine, and shooting in the middle of the Australian desert and then walking into um, a random little bar in the middle of the outback with your crew, all Asian, and watching as everyone sort of stopped their conversations just to stare at you. And I love what you said. They just couldn't believe that so many Asians were in the middle of their desert, which is just a brilliant comment and made me smile. I know, it was like a Clint Eastwood movie when he walked into a bar and everyone was playing cards and then... Suddenly there was a silent and followed by shooting, a shootout. And uh, and I guess there was a shootout, but not with guns, but certainly with eyes. Life in imitates art, as they say. Yes, they yeah. do. As a writer, I provide, one of the things I do at least, is I provide editorial services. And um, I do this for a family in Hong Kong whose son is doing a film studies degree in London. And I actually really enjoy it because I'm learning loads. Um, so basically, I copy edit the son's essays. One of the essays recently centred around the male gaze, which I kind of knew about but kind of didn't. It's really interesting. Would you mind, as a film director, describing the male gaze to listeners? It is really the male point of view. It is how you see the other person, uh, less of a human, but more of a subject. It could be a subject of desire or undesire. In some ways, you dehumanize that person and take part of their experience and memories away and use your own point of view and use your own desire to project your own desire onto that person. Basically, most of the films, at least in the old days, were of male gaze. If you give the camera point of view to a woman, it's been shown that if a woman makes a film, she would spend less of the film time on a woman's body and more time on her having a speaking role. But in the past, the woman uh, role would have a lot less speaking time and she would really be used to be, you know, as a background, part of the furniture, that's what I say. Yeah, decoration. Everything that you're talking about, as you're saying it, you've suddenly reminded me of something that a TV producer, a friend of mine, Hannah, mentioned to me a few weeks ago. One of my favourite, favourite TV shows is Succession with the showrunner, Jesse Armstrong, who I'm a huge fan of. 
And um, she sent me a great little link, which I'll put into the show notes for this podcast, which described how the way the this that show was shot made it feel as though the audience was another cast member, which is sort of on a similar lines in terms of what the camera does, which I find in a geeky way, I find quite interesting. So I'm going to just link into that while I'm remembering it. Can we also touch upon the Harvey Weinstein scandal? I personally know two people who had previously worked very closely with Harvey. One is um, another award-winning film director. So for me, the scandal, if I'm honest, was a shock, but not a surprise, if that makes sense. One of the most powerful movie scenes I watched in recent years was the Jay Roach film Bombshell with Nicole Kidman, Charlize Theron and Margot Robbie. There was a scene that almost made me cry where a young woman is having a work lunch with an older male colleague that she thought was very innocent, but it was very clear that he was expecting sexual favours. And in the movie, she had this internal dialogue that we could hear that felt really familiar to me. And I recalled a similar situation I'd had in, in my 20s. This is quite a big question, so go with it wherever you want to. But what are your thoughts on the Me Too movement? I think Me Too is is absolutely huge and it's really about time because in the past it's not just the movie industry. It happens in every industry, be it banking or your, your, your corner store and so on. It really is the power play in that one group of people. You can place that group in the film studio, but equally you can put that group in any business, any corporate business, any corporate room. Because at that time, it was one group of people who had the power and the money. And it was another group of people who depended on them. We're talking about any group which has less power. And it's only when we give equal opportunity to every single person that that sort of dilemma need not happen. And so Me Too was... One of the most profound movements, I think, um, of our decade. I can't think of a single woman who doesn't have some kind of story, whether it's in her career, in her marriage, in her business. So, yeah, I think it almost lives in us now, doesn't it? There's um, a British black TV writer and actor who's amazing called Michaela Cole. And um, I heard her talk about the British media industry and maybe misquoting her here, I hope not, but she was talking about a successful woman's responsibility to throw down a hand and pull other women up the ladder to to offer that support. I find that visual or that, that imagery really moving and empowering. And I and I also think it's wonderful when men do that for women too. And there are, of course, some incredible and lovely men who make a point of doing this for women. Have you ever had anyone pull you up the ladder and sort of question tacked onto that? Do you try and pull others up where you can? I think that's the whole idea of, of starting Puff Film Festival is really to give those who are less empowered a voice and a place to screen their films. And also that's one reason why I also invested in some of the films that the filmmakers were going to make. So Papajenka, for example, made by Emma Brzezinski, a Serbian filmmaker, woman filmmaker. She now lives in Colombia, in South America. And our film managed to, to be premiered at the SXSW Festival in the US. So again, that is just one example But every year I would work with different filmmakers, sometimes men, most of them women, and that will give them a chance to make their voice heard and also to advance the career. But in terms of successful women having to pull other women up, oh yes, of course. It also gives meaning, I guess, to everything I do. 
But there's something I wanted to add, and that is, I think that should not be what we're thinking about. Other women pulling other women up the ladder. I say, hang on, where are the men? I think men should be pulling other women up. And for some reason, they seem to have escaped that responsibility because they are the one who has ever been the most powerful group in the what, past 4,000 years, more or less. So, no, I hear a lot of people saying women has to pull other women's up and so on. You know what? A lot of women actually don't have the time or the money. They are just surviving. And as for men, hang on a second. Women are your sisters, your moms, your girlfriends, your wives, your daughters. Why aren't you helping? That is my question. Don't give the job to another woman who's struggling already. How about the men? Yeah, gosh. They should be the primary group. Who should be doing it? All I can hear is women helping women, women helping. Sure, we do. Now, that's the basic. Women helping women, sure. It, it, it's like asking people who are, who, who are in, in, in poverty helping mm, other mm. poor people. <laughs> yes. Hello, how about people with money? <laughs> Where are you? I had never thought of it that way. And what you've just said is such a rallying call for any men listening. Yeah, because the power is vested, mostly vested in men. You think it's nothing to do with you uh, as a man? Of course there is everything. Because I, let me tell you, the fact that women are not as powerful and as in, in such a subservient position for such a long time, that hurt men as well, you know? The, the fact that we have equal opportunity and parity is not taking away anything from men. Men didn't know that. They think that, oh, you know, if they have equal opportunity, we'll lose out. And I tell you, in general as a whole, as a humanity as a whole, that is not true. That is just some lie. And also, it probably would alleviate the pressure that so many men feel to be, quote unquote, an alpha male, to lead the way, to be the provider, to be the breadwinner. Because actually, as you say, giving women, all minority groups, more parity, actually will alleviate, I would imagine, would alleviate the pressure on so many men. So thank you. Not only that, because men are just not one group of people. You know, 50% of the world is men. And they are so diverse as well. They have their own dreams as well. They don't want stereotype either. You know, men I've known are just lovely. I think they are just as lovely human being as any woman that I know. They are also oppressed by this stupid, you know, duality. The lie that we have been listening to. And the fact that we, if we free women, we free the men. In fact, they are the first to benefit. So interesting. Thank you so much. Moving the conversation to art, one of my favourite subjects. In 2008, you founded, as I said, Experimenta, a space for art and artists located in the middle of the Hong Kong Central Business District. You also produced a book about Experimenta, and this described how the space is, I'd say, just really discerning in relation to its own behaviour as a project or even as a building. So it isn't opened all the, all the time. It's extremely intentional in the projects it supports. It's reclaimed a part of the city that arguably is very establishment and that in itself is both defiant and I think quite subversive. All of this reminds me of the British artist Tracy Emin, who I love. 
the experimenter space clearly supports alternative voices and encourages work from people that, that, that push the boundaries of film and art and music. Can you tell us what's next for Experimento? Like, what, what's the latest? Uh, the latest is uh, we have an invitation to do a show uh, in the space, which is in the 8th district of Paris. It's quite close to the Lycée Palace behind Christie's. I am thinking of producing one, hopefully, uh, this year. But again, um, it depends on the situation because if Experimenta does do a new show, we probably want the artist to fly over to Paris for the opening uh, and also for the questions and answers and also perhaps do a artist-in-residence in Paris. That's what we usually do. We used to do do it once a year. Uh, an artist would stay in Experimenter for three to six weeks in Centro in Hong Kong, produce uh, the art, um, attend the opening. But then there's also a lot of exchanges if the artist is there for three to six weeks with the local community. So um, that's a sort of video art, video installation project that uh, Experimenter produced. So without the artist being able to be here, it's it's harder for the whole project to have that, the full meaning. I mean, we can still have display like an art gallery uh, without the, the artist being here. Uh, but that that is, uh, that's not ideal. So we, we want to wait and see if the artist could actually travel, hopefully later this year. So this is what's next. Thank you. And I'm going to put some links in the show notes again so that people can find out more um, if, if they want to. Has there ever been a moment in your career that's made you think about giving up? Every single day. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> if you think about one instance, I remember back in 2015, uh, I had a screening uh, with an American filmmaker, Rachel Mason. We, uh, we were screening at The View, Piccadilly. That's a big deal. That's where the James Bond had the premiere. And um, it was a film festival, and we were so excited, um, our first festival. But uh, I remember something like 20 people turned up, and um, there was a moment that uh, I doubted whether we could do it. Um, Maybe I thought, maybe it's not for women, maybe it's not meant to be. So that was one moment, but, but, you know, last year, me and Rachel Mason, her film, Circus of Books, was nominated in the Emmys for Best Writing in a Non-Fiction category. So five years on, you know, from 2015 to 2020, we turned it around. And um, it is now on Netflix in the th- first three months. We weren't told the exact numbers because Netflix is, uh, kept some of the numbers uh, uh, confidential, but something like 3 million views in the first uh, few months. So from 20 to to 3 million, there is hope for everyone. Don't give up. Never give up. Congratulations. Film is a notoriously hard industry to get into. How, out of interest, how did you access the industry? And 
what advice would you give to young filmmakers, in particular young female filmmakers, trying to find a way in, particularly if they don't, let's say, have heaps of funding or friends or family or just existing connections? What advice would you give filmmakers? Me personally, I started by answering a volunteer call for an independent film um, in Hong Kong back in 1998. I thought, okay, it's just volunteer. I volunteered. I took part in the film. And then one of the directors asked me to, to help with another film. And then, and then one after the other, I began to be able to work in different roles. And that's how I learned. I didn't go to film school, but I actually learned by making and helping out in a few actually independent films before um, I took up the camera myself. Advice to female filmmakers if you don't have any uh, resources. You know what? Times have changed and today I'm recording this in iPhone 13 Pro, which is good enough to make a feature film and someone actually had made a feature film (laughs) using this phone. Um, So... Um, Technique-wise um, and, and equipment-wise, you are, you know, we are at, uh, at closest to parity in, in, in that sense. Um, film schools these days are hugely expensive, actually. Uh, mostly wealthy kids go to film schools and so, so are art schools because they're mostly private around the world. They're less public funding because they're seen as non-essential. So in a way, I was just saying, you don't have to go to a film, film school to learn. There are so many courses, online courses, that you can learn how to make a film. You don't need to go to a film school. Another suggestion I want to make is read manga. A lot of the manga, Japanese manga, or, or could be any manga uh, from around the world, actually has a lot of film language instilled in their pages. So learning art and technique of film language, again, you can do it on your own. But can I say all these are just technical? Everything I just said is just the process. You know, one thing I would give to a female filmmaker without much uh, resources, or little or a lot of resources, is this. Know that your story is worth telling. That is easier said than done. It takes a lifetime of knowing that. And I guess also to trust your own voice as a storyteller as well and to actually differentiate your voice. Thank you. Just to add, I think, please correct me, manga is the uh, the Japanese comic books, I think. And I'll put some links in there. That's correct. Thank you. What is the best advice you've received in business? You know what? As a as an Asian woman, no one has actually given me any business advice. Dieting advice, I had a lot. <laughs> it's really quite sad. I mean, that's the truth. No one actually think that I would need one. No one think that I would be interested. Mm, that's quite poignant. Okay, which women inspire you? My grandmother, Yong King. Her name in the nineteen thirties. She was a businesswoman. In those times, not too many women know how to write. She knows how to write, even buy stocks. And she ran a business, a salt trading business in the 1930s. And she used to tell me she would 
travel all the way to the new territories, and that's very, really far. That was before we had MTRs, uh, uh, trains, um, to collect debt, she told me. Can you imagine, in the 1930s, 40s, a woman collecting debt for her salt trading business? And, and it is because of her success that up to this date, uh, the, the salt trading association is still chaired by my father. Goodness me, you clearly have a powerful lineage of women behind you, cheering you on somehow, if we can uh, put it that way. What is the best decision that you've ever made? Oh, um, to left my private equity firm and actually plunge right into volunteering for an independent firm, which pays absolutely nothing. <laughs> Good answer and an honest answer. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, this is an obvious question, but I'm going to have to ask it. Favorite film? Oh, there's so many, and and it changes every year. Um, if you have to ask me, um, Olivia Hutsky, a, Ju- a Romeo and Juliet. I think it was 1960s. Did you see the Baz Luhrmann uh, version of it? Which I think is the only one I've seen. Oh, really? Mm, yeah, it's kind of kind of cool. It's sort of a modern day adaptation. And I also read somewhere that you said you, you're a fan of The Godfather, of course, by uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And I was going to ask you if you'd ever seen the version Suicides by his daughter, Sophia Coppola, because that's quite beautifully shot. Or really, I think it is anyway. I will see it. Yeah, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes too. Um, fine. How do you relax? Oh, I love walking. And that's what I've been doing in Paris for the past two years. I just walk. Just walks. Um, that really relaxes me. The fresh air, the scenes, the sights, the smells. It doesn't have to be Paris, actually. It just could be anywhere. And I would walk. And because every time I walk, even on the road, which is nondescript, I can see a story that emerges from it. There's a beautiful, I don't know Paris that well, but there's a beautiful sort of public square behind the Louvre. And I know the Louvre is huge, but it's like a little public square with these sort of columns, which are quite playful. Oh, that's a Palais Royal. Yes, that's it. That's it. And if I'm in Paris, I love to just to sit there. So if I next come to Paris, I'm going to look you up and say, meet me there, Gina, and we'll grab a coffee. And I will take up that offer. (laughs) I'd love to do that. Um, Gina, thank you so much. It's been nothing but a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you. Not at all. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And that ends our podcast. Thank you so much, Gina. Please do visit her website, which is ginawong.net. And I'd recommend you also visit www.experimenter.hk. And you can find Experimenter on Instagram via at Experimenter. All of these links, by the way, and many more will be in the show notes. Speaking of social feeds, you can find us on Twitter at WearShoesPod and on Instagram, we are WearShoesPodcast with an underscore between all three words. If you'd like our team to produce a podcast for you, or if you'd like to recommend a guest for Wear Shoes, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via www.thepodcastpeople.co. This podcast was edited by Antonio Mattesini, one of our producers and editors at The Podcast People, and he also happens to be my brother-in-law. So thanks, Tony. My name's Fiona Mattesini. This is Wear Shoes. Thanks for listening.